Okay, let's do some quick math. The less your business spends on operations, on multiple systems, on delivering your product or service, the more margin you have and the more money you keep. That's obvious. But with higher expenses on materials, employees, distribution, and borrowing, everything costs more. To reduce costs and headaches, smart businesses are graduating to NetSuite by Oracle. Here's the thing. Information is power. Information is money. Literally, the currency of today's world of, of entrepreneurship is information. And if you could bring all of the, your, the information about your business into one dashboard, this is incredibly valuable. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, HR into one platform and one source of the truth about your business. With NetSuite, you reduce IT costs because NetSuite lives in the cloud with no hardware required, access from anywhere. You cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because you've got one unified business management suite. And you're improving efficiency by bringing all of your major business processes into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. This is so valuable. You just hit a button and you can see all the information about your business instead of having to like call five different departments and get all these emails and put it all together and make sense of it. Over 37,000 companies have already made the move. So do the math, see how you'll profit with NetSuite. Backed by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash james, netsuite.com slash james netsuite.com slash james start clean with clorox because clorox delivers a powerful clean every time because messes happen because hey listen remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation and you were like i'm serious if that leaks over the counter it'll be a slimy abomination by the time i get back and i was like yeah 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 of course don't worry about it i won't forget <laughs> well oh yeah that happens so start clean with clorox use clorox products as directed rinse after use if in contact with food service this isn't your average business podcast, and he's not your average host. This is The James Altucher Show. Today on The James Altucher Show. Just had a great interview with Andrew Yang. I learned so much. We spoke about the campaign, things I had no idea about, things I had never heard him say before. And I've listened to every single podcast and interview that Andrew Yang's done, and I've never heard him say some of these things. We spoke about the UBI, particularly how a UBI would work in today's world. We spoke about police reform, politics reform, economic reform, education. Is he going to run in 2024? And all the ups and downs along the way during this campaign and the career and so on. So here it goes. Listen to Andrew Yang. So, um, Jay, you want to start recording? Oh, thank you, Jay. So, uh, Andrew, that was, that, that was a good, uh, you called Jay by his first name. I like the kind of instinctive, uh, persuasion techniques, you know, it's, uh, it's, it, 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 it always is endearing to call people by their name. 
Oh, thank you. I appreciate it. James. Uh, no, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> Listen, we're, we're both uh, computer science majors who took uh, different uh, directions in their career. And actually, that was the first thing I wanted to ask you about, which is, you know, before we get into all the UBI automation presidential campaign, why'd you quit uh, being a lawyer? And I, and I get it, but, but why'd you do it? And did that, was everybody upset at you? My parents were not happy, uh, but I, I left for two reasons. Number one, um, someone told me a while ago that uh, if you are working someplace, you should try and find the person whose life you want. Uh, and there was not someone in that firm where I was like, ooh, I just really want to be that person. Not a knock on them, but you know that just wasn't um, an aspiration. And the second thing is the work made me feel like I was becoming a negative person, where if you're a good lawyer, you're always thinking about the worst that can happen. And that was a depressing way to spend your time. It's like, uh, how, like, what's the shittiest thing that can happen to these deal parties? Uh, and I thought I'd rather try and make something positive happen than catalog uh, negative possibilities. Uh, and so those two things drove me out in about five months. And so when you were thinking about running for president, was there someone running or was there a president whose life you wanted to, to be like? That's a great question. I'm not sure there was like a role model in that sense. I mean, I was driven to run for president in part because I felt like there was a real need for a different set of ideas or solutions. Uh, and I thought that I had a chance to advance them. And I was unfortunately confident that no one currently in the political universe was going to advance them. So it, it really was like an entrepreneur in a startup where, you know, like there you see a gap in the market and then you want to try and fill it. Um, I saw a gap in the ideas market and uh, I wanted to fill it and running for president seemed like the most effective way. But I confess, I can't really think of someone I was trying to model or pattern myself after. So when you were, you know, talking to friends, family supporters about, you know, making the decision to run, I'm sure a lot of people said, Andrew, what the hell are you doing? Like you're, there's no way you're going to win. No one has ever won, you know, with, with, this sort of blah, 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 whatever reasons they had. Uh, how did you kind of internally get yourself ready so that you could take a run seriously? Well, it really was, again, like a startup where um, it was almost levels where uh, it, I never had this conversation where it's like, oh, are you ready to be, you know, president, like scrutinizing the public or whatnot? Because that was just so distant. Like if that was letter... Um, T or U in the alphabet, I was like, look, I'm at letter A. Let me just try and get to letter B or C, you know, uh, which is, I think, the way most startups operate because uh, initially of so many problems to solve. To me, it was always about like the next series of letters than it was, you know, that I I'm going to be president. Because, you know, realistically, it's not like I, I thought that there was like a 51% um, chance of my becoming president in 2020. Like, you know, if you sat me down and thought what the chances were, I'd be like, well, it's unlikely. Um, so the biggest thing I had to prepare myself really was for a lot of rejection and a lot of time away from my family and on the road in New Hampshire, Iowa, or other places. And it felt like a startup where it's like, okay, one thing I, I thought was better than most startups is, and you've, you've done a lot of them yourself, James, uh, is that when you start a company, you have no idea what the time frame is going to be really. And so you can say, hey, I'm going to try and get this done, but you know, you might be in it for 
uh, five, 10 years, more, longer. Whereas running for president, I said, okay, I know when the primary is, I know uh, when the election is. So I need to gear myself up for, let's call it two and a half years Mm. of pounding the pavement and kicking ass and making the case and, uh, you know, trying to get people on board. Uh, and so that's, that, that was actually comforting to me because I was like, frankly, if you're an entrepreneur, and I could say this to you, James, it's like, could you do just about anything under the sun for two and a half years if you knew that that was the time frame? I don't know, actually. Two and a half years does feel like a long time to brutalize yourself in, in the public, in the media, in, you know, with people who are trying to just tear you down every single day or build you up because there's also a lot of you had a lot of excited supporters in, including me for for a good oh, chunk you. of that so uh high five man thank you yeah high five yeah. to the zoom <laughs> it was probably more than i reckoned uh on um in terms of the brutality um but in day 1 when it was like can you check your personal needs at the door for like you know a couple of years um for the sake of Western civilization. Uh, and, and, you know, I felt like I could. Um, now, it, it turns out that the process is more human um, than you might have thought. So, like in month 18, when you're, you know, shivering in, uh, you know, uh, Iowa, no one's showing up, then, <laughs> you know, like, you know, like uh, it, it's not always easy. But to your point, though, the Yang Gang always kept me going because, you know, like when, when you get out there and there were people excited to see you, it's incredibly. Uh, invigorating and like I'm still grateful for it. Yeah, no, the uh, I, I want to talk about the Yang Yang in a second, but um, and, and of course I'm going to always repeat I'm going to want to talk about the the issues, particularly since some of these issues that you brought up in the campaign have accelerated so fast. Obviously, that they they they're extremely fascinating in the world we're heading into. But was there a moment when you were like depressed? Like you mentioned shivering by yourself in Iowa where you were like, what the hell did I think I was doing? There were some depressing times on the trail for sure. Um, the, a couple that, call, that I, I recall, the early days of the campaign were very, very hard because I declared in early 2018 and there was zero attention being paid to the 2020 race in 2018. So I would go out there and I would literally show up to a coffee shop in New Hampshire and there'd be like one person there uh, for my event. <laughs> or, uh, you know, I'd, I'd uh, go to a fair in Iowa and just no one knew who the heck I was and just no one cared about uh, a race that was, you know, a year and a half or two years away. So, uh, so th- those were very difficult times. I, you know, some people I'm close to, like, didn't support the campaign. And so you're like, really? And and you can kind of see it where like, if your friend runs for president and you just don't think it's realistic, um, like many of my friends just got on board and said, okay, Andrew, I think you're crazy, but let's go. Um, and, but then some others uh, did not get on board and that's like hard to take, you know, as a human. Um, so, so I think the early days were very hard. So anyone who supported me early on, thank you, thank you, thank you. And then there, there were some challenging periods like in the uh, middle where I felt like I was like letting folks down somehow. Um, you, just get, you just get so charged up that like if you feel like the campaign's not poised to accomplish its goals, like it's actually really hard sometimes. Uh, and, and down the stretch, I felt that sometimes. 
Well, and it's interesting because I feel like you mentioned before, there was this, there was this gaping hole in the market of ideas. And I like the way you express that because in a sense, you were running two campaigns in parallel. One was a campaign for yourself to be president. And that goes through the same rules that everyone else uh, is going through at that time. And the other was, of course, the campaign for expressing this idea, UBI, which is an old idea, but you expressed it very uniquely and getting public recognition that this is something that society needs. And, and I think while the presidential campaign might not have worked out this time, maybe it will in the future. I do feel you, and I'm curious if you think you feel you did this. I feel you succeeded in gaining a huge recognition for the concept of, of UBI. Yeah, that's one thing I'm so grateful uh, for that. I feel like we mainstream universal basic income right when the country needed it. And uh, I'm optimistic that we're going to see more cash programs get implemented in real life in the days ahead. The fact that now you know, 13 mayors around the country are calling for universal basic income is enormous because you know that group's going to grow very, very quickly. I mean, if you're a mayor looking around at the problems you see today uh, in your community, you have to look up and say, look, this is like beyond my uh, community's ability to address on our own, uh, you know, like we, we need to think differently. So that 13 mayors is going to become 30 and then 300. Um, hopefully we'll see universal basic income implemented in the U.S. sooner rather than later. And I do feel like uh, my campaign will have played a role. So, I, you know, it's something that makes me so excited. It's why I ran is that if you legitimately think that you're making a decision and busting your tail um, for a couple of years could help accelerate the end of poverty in your country, then you have to do it. You know, and I had this instinct where I was like, I think I can accelerate the end of poverty. Um, and we're not there yet, but we're getting closer. Yeah, and you know, it's interesting because of, everybody's been saying, and I agree with this, that since the pandemic began, and particularly since the economic lockdown began, every part of society is getting accelerated. So if thing, if Walmart was gonna automate Five years from now, they're automating one year from now. If you were going to get divorced 10 years from now, you're getting divorced right after these lockdowns are over. Like, And the same thing with the discussion of UBI. And the big question that people approached with you was, how would you afford this? Now we know the answer. We could kind of afford anything right now. <laughs> like we just printed you know, trillions of dollars, both for stimulus and for Federal Reserve actions. And when I ask the Federal Reserve about this or people in the Federal Reserve, the reality is there's so much demand for the U.S. dollar that we could borrow this money for a very long time. And, and that includes for potentially a UBI as the second stage of the stimulus. And, and do you think maybe the introduction of UBI in society might be a part of a stimulus package? Because clearly we can afford it now. No one's asking that question anymore. The last number I saw was that 81% of Americans favor cash relief uh, as part of the stimulus. Now, in a sensible democracy, that would mean it would become part of the stimulus bill. But uh, just the, the fact that everyone wants it, including I think it's 68% of Republicans want it. Um, I'm optimistic there'll be some cash component of this bill. Um, I'm hopeful that it includes recurring payments and that it's not just another one-time thing. Um, but we're going to at least see a one-time payment um, as part of the next stimulus, I believe. And so I, you know, I agree with you. I think I think part of the you know, maybe the first stimulus, it's hard to judge or not judge or whatever, but it seems like if there's a second stimulus package, just 
giving money to corporations doesn't necessarily get the money in the economy. It doesn't increase what's called the velocity of money, so so which is what we desperately need. But if you give money directly to the people who spend it, they that will get into the economy. And I, you know, just for the heck of it, I wrote to people I knew in the administration about the same thing you've been talking about, Congressman Tim Ryan's been talking about. And I suggested why not at least a six-month UBI to get the money directly into the economy. And the response I got back in general was, wouldn't people lose the incentive to work? Which I thought was ridiculous, but how do you respond to that? Well, part of the the problem right now, James, is that uh, a lot of the benefits are tied to unemployment. Uh, And so you do have Americans right now who are getting paid a significant amount of money. And if they were to start working, then they would lose that money. So part of the the structure really is that if you put this money into people's hands, but they get it um, regardless of whether they take that extra shift or start working a bunch of hours, um, that would be actually a very big uh, differentiation. So that that's a feature of our current unemployment benefit system. Uh, writ large, I think that concern is pretty dumb, um, just in that right now the goal, like you said, is just to get money back into the economy. Uh, and you're not going to be putting so much money into people's hands that uh, they're not going to want to work. Just the the problem is that right now, if you're a laid off bartender or airline attendant or uh, security guard, who's hiring? <laughs> you know, it's like what really is an alternative where you're like, oh, I don't want to give these people money because they might like not want to go out and get a job. It's like, do you foresee, uh, you know, like are are creating tens of millions of jobs, like for folks who, who've just been furloughed or laid off, like in, in the next six months, I certainly don't. No, I think, uh, I think we're seeing like, particularly in, in New York city and other major cities, but across the country, you're going to see something like 50% of storefronts out of business. It's like 15, 15 million employees, 20 million employees. And nobody wakes up today and says, boy, I can't wait to start a pizza restaurant in New York city. Once things open up again, so I don't know what's going to replace that. There's going to be, it's unpredictable. It's unpredictable because it's not going to happen. You know, you, you even have a company like Google that's still minting money uh, with a hiring freeze. So, you know, like that, we have to face facts that um, 42% of the jobs that we're losing are gone forever. And yeah. 42% of, uh, let's call it 30 to 40 million. I mean, you're, you're looking at something like twice the impact of the Great Recession in perpetuity. Uh, that's that's devastating. That's a catastrophe. Uh, and that's where we are. We've managed to stop the bleeding with the first stimulus package, but it, it's evaporating. Uh, the unemployment benefits are um, running out. Uh, and so we need something of the same scale and magnitude or else we're going to see indescribable despair and suffering uh, in the United States. Mass evictions, people on the, the streets, uh, lines for miles for food, kitchens, like you you name it, like whatever grisly scenario you can imagine um, is going to come to pass the United States of America unless Congress enacts meaningful relief. So I can't tell if you were just describing the next dystopian movie or what you actually think is going to really happen. Like, do what's the odds that something like that really happens? Because to be honest, I'm nervous about it. A lot of people are nervous about that. I'm I'm nervous too. I just hope that our uh, leaders in Congress uh, get their shit together, honestly, and just do what any sensible economist is recommending, which is uh, direct cash relief, 
some form of cushion for folks who've lost their jobs and relief to states because the last thing you want is uh, states laying off hundreds of thousands of workers around the country because they all have budget shortfalls, which they do right now. I mean, if you're a state, like you've seen your tax revenue plummet, you have a balanced budget amendment, so you're not allowed to run a deficit. So what the hell do you do? You turn around and being like, oh, I guess we're going to like fire thousands of workers. During a pandemic when theoretically you might need some of those workers to, to do something like uh, trace contacts or, um, you know, uh, teach or whatever the heck, uh, you know, like under the sun. I mean, you probably need more of it, not less. So those are the three things that are no-brainers. Uh, and there are a lot of other things that you could make a very good argument for on top of them. Um, but we need to be like your friends. I mean, we need to be aggressive about this where, you know, the danger is doing too little, not too much. Yeah, I agree. And, uh, uh, you know, again, part of it, a part of the initial criticisms were, oh, there might be hyperinflation or there might be, you know, how does the government pay for it? You can't just print money forever. Yeah, you're not seeing any of it. <laughs> yeah, actually, where we're, there's deflation. Like whenever you get an email that says, oh, it's a 40% off on shirts today only, that's actually the new price. It's not really a sale. Like things are down, prices are down and printing money hasn't changed that. Yeah, we're in danger of hitting a deflationary cycle. Uh, and so putting money into people's hands would be an excellent idea. Uh, like, I think the inflation counterargument is really based more on like a knee-jerk reflex uh, around uh, giving money to people than it is grounded in fact. Because if you just look at the facts, like we're facing the opposite danger. Yeah, and so... I think one of the things that impressed, like, and I've seen you mention this on on other podcasts, like you mentioned this on the Sam Harris podcast recently, where, uh, but I'll repeat it, your audience, your fans, the Yang Gang, they were more um, obsessed, like they were, they were, they fanatically supported your your candidacy, your ideas, and so on, more than any other candidate. I think there was even polls where you know people would always had you as they were obsessively interested in you winning the people who supported you. And what do you think was, there was something about your authenticity. I felt something separated you out from the other presidential candidates at the time. And, and I know I appreciated in the debates, your authenticity, kind of like you, you had a quirkiness, you had a humor. There was, you know, you were at point, at one point you said, you know, I'm Asian. So I know, I know a lot of doctors and, you know, stuff like that, where it was like, people were just like struck for a second and they were like, Hey, he's not, he's a presidential candidate. He's not supposed to talk like that. And people appreciated it. Uh, what do you think it was that, that, you know, was it a hurdle to, to have that voice? Was it the fact that you were, didn't have a political background? And maybe this is a naive question. I don't know, but I, I, I've been curious. I'm, I'm grateful to everyone who supported the campaign, including you. Uh, and I, I think they saw in me uh, someone they could relate to who's, who's running for president, not because it was like the next step in some career plan or whatnot, or like part of like the, like the childhood ambition, um, but uh, genuinely just wants to solve problems and improve things. And I think for many people, there's like this real recognition that our career politicians and political systems have not been addressing the challenges uh, of our time. Uh, and that if someone who just stood up and said, look, we should do things differently. Like a lot of people got excited about it. And I'm glad they saw that in me because it genuinely was not some like a grand plan or a lifelong ambition. I mean, I'm, I'm just someone who sees that we can do things a lot better. Uh, 
we can do things a lot better. I mean, it's, it's really unfortunate how uh, dark things are getting in part because we haven't had the right leadership. Yeah, and, and so I, I have to ask one more campaign thing and then I really wanna get into some of these issues, but I'm, I'm fascinated by the narratives of all the candidates in the campaign. And, and in your debate, you always expressed very well about UBI and, and the issues around it. Was there any point in the debates where you felt outclassed in some way, like, oh, these, this person, these people are, are somehow playing the nuances a little better than I am in the debates? Or like, where, where, where did you feel challenged almost in a game-like fashion during the campaign? Oh, I, I felt challenged just in that it felt like uh, like you were in a, a theater production or like a stage play and then like no one informed you. <laughs> where, where, and moderators were part of it too. It's like everyone you get there that everyone has like these freaking roles that, that they're playing. Uh, and like, I, I'm like, a, you know, I consider myself like a fairly normal human. So I was like, okay, like, like what, what's going on? Like, the, like, did I not get the scripts of the stage note? Um, <laughs> so that adaptation took me some time. So I certainly never felt outclassed in terms of um, like someone's access to information or argumentation. Um, but I, I felt like people were further along on a curve of, uh, of um, artifice almost, or like the ability to project a certain thing in like a simulated manner um, that, <laughs> that, that, that like uh, I was just figuring out like that, like the first debate I went to um, one of the candidates was like backstage, like, like practicing lines. Um, and it reminded me of like a high school play, you know, huh. and I looked around and was like, holy shit. <laughs> like, you should write a book about that. Like all the behind the scenes stuff like that. You know, I'm, I mean, I'm, I'm um, writing some thoughts down, uh, you know, that will include probably some of these, um, these anecdotes. Uh, so, I mean, you know, nothing imminent, but like, I do want to try and catalog something. You know, there was one point where um, the moderators were asking Bernie Sanders about his uh, policies on student loans and, and you know, student loan uh, wiping them out and stuff. And I knew you had such a great, you have such a great stance on this. You had such a great opinion on it, which you've, you've written about. It was on your website. You talked about it on Joe Rogan. I was literally crying like, Andrew, interrupt Bernie Sanders right here. This is the thing to do. Get this out. And you didn't do it. I was so disappointed. Thank you, James. Uh, yeah, that, that was like the, the tough part of the dynamic because you're there. And I had points of view on a lot of things. Um, but the dynamic of the, that environment and the moderators and the stage is that you feel like, um, like you're going to be a real asshole if you... Uh, but in more than, let's call it like once. Um, uh, and so it, it was like a constant judgment call being like, hey, is this going to be the time? Um, because you did very much feel like, um, like, like, like they did not necessarily want to pass you the baton. You know, it's like if you say something, then they're just going to move on as quickly as possible. Um, and so that was like a tough environment that way. Um, but I felt similarly a lot of the time where, uh, you know, like where, where there was something being discussed and I thought I, I had like a, frankly, a better answer. Um, and it, maybe it's on me that I didn't butt in more often for sure. Uh, well, obviously, you know, you, you have many future chances to, to butt in on, on these things. So we all can hope, but, um, 
you know, big a big uh, part of the impetus for your UBI was your fears of automation and automation taking jobs from uh, Americans. Clearly, now automation is is happening, and everything's going to get automated, and nobody's nobody's slowing it down now. Nor nor should they. There's a lot of reasons they're they're automating. You know, for for uh, social distancing reasons, for medical reasons, for uh, productivity reasons, while while the economy is is uncertain. And obviously, it's not even the big problem anymore because so many people lost their jobs due to the pandemic and so on. But what's your view now on automation? Has it shifted a little? What, how does it relate now to UBI? Well, like you said earlier, we're just accelerating uh, the automation of many of these jobs. Uh, and if you just look at yourself at this point, if you don't see a human, you're excited. It's like value add. <laughs> you know, like there, there was an argument against automation that I always thought was dumb where people were like, oh, people just love other people. Like, you know, like you don't want a, it to be done by a robot. Like you'd rather it be done by a person. And I was always like, really? <laughs> and and now we're seeing that you really would prefer it to be automated and not have a human even touch it or like have to see it or exchange air with the, the, the human, which is very sad. Um, but no, that like the it's taking what might have taken ten years, and it's happening in ten weeks. I mean, it's going to be a nightmare for many, many people. Um, many firms are doubling down on things that they had on the drawing board. Really, like they look at it. I think I saw a recent poll. It was by one of the big uh, consulting firms, and they said that something like half of them are speeding up their automation uh, investments. But, but let me, let's look at like a, a, a past moment in history, like the development of the ATM machine. Everyone was worried, oh my gosh, a million bank tellers are going to lose their jobs. And instead, profits increased so much that now there's a, a bank you know, branch on every single corner and there's more tellers and, and bank employees higher than ever. Could that be the case? Like you mentioned, like the truck driving industry often in the campaign. If there's automated driving on the highways, that means more products delivering to the cities. You still need drivers in the final mile because there's no self-driving in cities. I mean, we're, we're, we're probably very far away from that still. Yeah, it, it is case by case. The, the problem really with the arguments uh, are that like you can find a case like bank tellers where, uh, you know, there was like a growth opportunity and then you found other more value added things for the workers to do. But then there are other settings where you're just going to get rid of the workers, you know? So, like, can you cherry pick and find, like, a setting where it's one or the other? Sure. Uh, you know, like, um, most of the time it's going to be really complicated. Like the trucking example you used, are you still going to need drivers in the last mile? Yes. Uh, like, could you potentially need more drivers in the last mile? Yes. Is that going to get counterbalanced by uh, the long haul? You know, it's like, well, the long haul, they spend a lot more time than in the last mile. Are you going to have the driver sleeping in the truck and not uh, driving, but you're still going to need a person there? Maybe, you know, for, for a number of reasons. Would you then need to compensate that person differently? Almost certainly, yes. You know, so, like the, so there are like different variables in any of these. Um, you can't make a gross generalization one way or the other, uh, except the generalization you can make is that businesses are going to do everything they can to uh, maximize their bottom line, uh, and that at least in some of these cases, you're not going to find another job for this person to do that's higher value add. You know, an example that most people can understand. Let's say you're Walmart. Let's say you have hundreds of stores in the U.S. Let's say you make self-checkout the norm and you get rid of like, uh, you know, a dozen cashiers per, um, per location. 
are you going to do like the bank teller like example and open a bunch of new Walmarts? Like, no. <laughs> like, are you going to find a new role for all of the cashiers? It's like, um, well, like, what would you have them do? And then you look around the rest of the store and you're like, well, maybe they can shelve. And it's like, well, maybe they can clean. And, and you know, so in some cases there might be something for them to do, but at some point you're going to cut some people, you know? So like the, the fact that you're, um, like a, a lot of the arguments around this struck me as always very undisciplined. Um, and, and it's uh, one of the problems, James, is that uh, as a country, we're really data shy and uh, argument heavy. It's like people will just... That's for sure. Yeah, pe- people will just say like, oh, but there's this example and like, you know, like you're wrong, I'm right. And it's like, well, it's actually a pretty complicated question. We should probably like go to the numbers on this one <laughs> and figure it out. And, and if you look at the numbers, like there are studies coming out now that say, hey, for every robot um, that you, you implement in an area, like you're going to lose, you know, like X number of jobs. Uh, and so people are studying it and finding that the impact is real. I have to say... Airbnb has changed my life. I just love staying in Airbnbs. Like in about a month, I'm going to Cocoa Beach, which is right next to Cape Canaveral. I'm going to watch some rocket launches. I'm going to, of course, be staying in a very nice Airbnb on the beach. And it's just such a great experience. Like the whole world is available to us now because of Airbnb. But whenever I'm at an Airbnb, I always realize, you know, I the home that I left to come to this Airbnb, I could be making money on that right now by hosting and and being an Airbnb myself. So, and I've known people, I had a friend who basically, you know, made a living from turning his home into an Airbnb. So if you have a home, but you're not always at home, you do have an Airbnb there. And it's an e- it can easily fit into your lifestyle and it's a great way to earn some money. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. The famous Abraham Lincoln quote says, good things come to those who wait. I wonder, did he really say that? Jay, did he really say that? Can you look that up? Regardless of who said it, that's only part of the quote. The full quote is, Good things come to those who wait, but only the things left by those who hustle. Well, if you're a business owner and want the best people on your team, the same applies. And listen, I've interviewed 1,500 people now and a lot of entrepreneurs. I can safely say the one thing consistent among all entrepreneurs and CEOs, the the successful ones, is that it's all about the people you surround yourself. You, if you hire well. You're going to have a great business. And, you know, thankfully, ZipRecruiter puts the hustle in your hiring. So you find qualified candidates fast. This is so important. And I, I want you to try it. You could try it as a potential employer or employee. You could try it for free at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter's smart technology finds top talent for your roles right away. Immediately after you post your job, if you're hiring, ZipRecruiter's matching technology starts showing you qualified people for it. And I will tell you that 
I signed up on ZipRecruiter as a potential employee. You know, I just wanted to see how it works. And right away, it started matching me with really amazing potential employers. So give it a try at ZipRecruiter.com slash James. Let ZipRecruiter give you the hiring hustle you need. See why four out of five employers who post on ZipRecruiter get a quality candidate within the first day. Just go to ZipRecruiter.com slash James to try it for free. Again, that's ZipRecruiter.com slash James. ZipRecruiter, the smartest way to hire. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because... Hey, listen. Remember how you told me to toss those takeout containers before we left for vacation? And you were like, I'm serious. If that leaks over the counter, it'll be a slimy abomination by the time I get back. And I was like, yeah, yeah, yeah. Of course. Don't worry about it. I won't forget. (laughs) Well. Ooh, yeah. That happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed. Rinse after use if in contact with food surface. So, you know, this was one thing you mentioned in the campaign, and I was always a little confused about, but this is my own um, ignorance. When the unemployment rate was low, you were saying that's because many people, and I agree with this, many people just drop out of the workforce, so they're not, their numbers are not showing up. And this is going to be the stupidest question, but when someone drops out of the workforce, where do they go? <laughs> Don't they still need to work or make money or what happens to these people? Uh, so the labor force participation rate has been dropping for years in the U.S. Uh, pre-crisis, it was maybe 62%. Um, last I looked, it's down into the 50s now. Um, so you ask a very excellent question. It's like, what the hell happens to the person who drops out of the, the workforce? Uh, um, so if you are a young man, um, the most likely scenario is you live with your parents in the basement. Um, and then and you play video games and you're out of the workforce if you stop looking. Um, that that's I've actually, got five children. That's definitely true. <laughs> so that that's uh, very normal. I think what, what I saw was something like one out of six uh, men of prime working age is in that situation right mm-hmm. now. Uh, if you are a former manufacturing worker, uh, then you applied for disability. And um, uh, something like 20% of working age people in some counties in the U.S. are on disability. Mm-hmm. So if you used to be in that job and then the job disappears and you say, oh, I'm disabled, um, and then the government says, okay, here's like, uh, you know, 1100 a month, um, but you can't work ever again. And, and so when I, I talked to folks uh, on disability, they said to me, it's like, I'd like to volunteer on the side, but I'm scared I'll lose my disability. Um, so that's one of the worst situations of all worlds where it's like, well, l- let me get this straight. We're giving the person money um, and now they can't even volunteer because you can imagine someone being disabled, like too disabled for like a rigorous 40 hour uh, manufacturing job, but like, you know, maybe they could volunteer at the local shelter a little bit. Or it even squashes entrepreneurship. You're not allowed to start anything if you're on disability. You often, you can't get medication if you need it, if you start a business. And that's, uh, you know, a UBI, I do agree, a UBI, even, a you know, bigger than a thousand a month, 2000 a month, UBI would go a long way to to solving a lot of those issues. Um, in terms of, you know, right now, obviously we're, we're in, in, in the middle of all these uh, protests. It's the, the tragedy of, of George but Floyd. I, I just want to throw in another data point, and this is going to like, you know, be a very complicated one, so you can't simplify it too much. Um, but when the economy is in a rough patch, historically, you know what a lot of people did? Went back to school. And then, yeah. uh, and then you're out of the workforce. And in, in theory, you're like, oh, this is exciting because you're getting trained and equipped and better educated. Um, but in real life, some of these degrees are expensive. You might not get the job you want. Like at, at the very extreme, you have these for-profit 
uh, chains that are just like kind of trying to gouge you. Uh, like, and, and there, there are very, very dark stories where you have um, institutions like preying on vets or preying on like a population that they think they can get money from and that, like the person. So like when people go back to school, they also drop out of the workforce. So this is, this is a great point that leads to two questions. One is, what, what do you think of Google's recent announcement last week? You know, they have these three different certification programs. I believe they're running it through Coursera, where do, do we see some sort of, you know, corporate education complex that starts to develop that reduces the cost of having a sufficient enough education to get a good job? You're going to see a whole lot more of that. Uh, you know, and I had a conversation with a guy named Scott Galloway, you probably know. He's been on um, my podcast three or four times. Yeah. So he, he talks about how tech's going to go into education and healthcare because they need growth and uh, that's where you get it. And education is a very high margin business. And if you look at what people are paying for on education, um, a lot of it is around the credentialing and the network yes. and the higher ability. Um, it, it's not necessarily that uh, they're getting learning that's not available elsewhere. So if you can replace the credentialing and higher ability and to some extent the network um, and it's credible, which if you're a tech company, it's the most credible because frankly, like the, the reason why anyone would want to get some awesome degree is to work at Google. So if like Google somehow offering certification, you're like, Ooh, this could be like my, um, entry into, into working there. Um, so if you have that kind of cachet and the ability to offer credentialing, then you can compete very effectively because you don't cost 60,000 a year. Um, you don't necessarily require like a residential experience. And for these colleges, they're stuck because they're, they're looking up saying, hey, um, classes are going to be via Zoom, but you still owe us $60,000. And then families are looking up being like, wait, what just happened? Right. <laughs> you know, like, like, how did that work? Right. So there's got to be a change. Yeah. This is the tough part about a lot of these things, James. Um, and this is one error in thinking that a lot of people make in the U.S. in particular, um, where you think to yourself like, oh, this doesn't make sense, so it will change. Like what's happening in the United States is a lot of shit that doesn't make sense just sticks around. <laughs> I'll give you an example of why. So let's say I'm a parent. You have five kids, so you know this better than I do. Um, but let's say I'm a parent, my kid's about to go to college, and then you look up and you're like, wow, college is 60,000? It was only like 20,000 like when I went, or 25,000, or whatever the number was. Um, so then do you turn to your kid and be like, hey, guess what? You're not going to college? <laughs> like, uh, like, probably not. You're like, all right, I guess this is the way it goes down. So then uh, the government has said, don't worry about it. We'll give you loans. So you're up to $1.6 trillion in student loan debt, um, and people just felt like they had no choice but to pay. Same thing in healthcare, where our health insurance rates go, go up and up to the sky. And then at some point, did someone say like, well, you know, like uh, I'm, I'm going to stop? It's like, well, no, I don't have a choice. I need to get healthcare coverage. So it's one reason why things have become miserable for so many Americans is that you think shit is going to self-correct in a lot of spaces, but actually people can just get away with it for a long time. Uh, and it's true in government too. Like your government can screw up something royally and then you can't just turn to another government. Um, so, so you have these massive inefficiencies that are built up over time and you can't get rid of them. <laughs> like, like that's where it is. So if you have Google entering the market, that is a very positive development in some respects. It will increase competitive pressures on some of the weaker schools, but the strong schools will just keep on getting away with it. So uh, I want to get into what's going on with the protests, police reform, uh, you know, tragically, you know, everything that's happened in the past few months that, you know, maybe the, the lockdown was sort of the, 
the fire where that gas was thrown on and now everybody's uh, erupted into these protests and in some cases even even you know more aggressive protests your president say what's a solution i know uh, you know there's solutions ranging from you know how you deal, deal with the officers to maybe you know different types of weapons what 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 are you looking at you have to do a lot of things i mean when i when i looked at what's going on with police brutality as the data guy, I was like, okay, what are the measurements you can have for this problem? So issue number one, how many people are killed by police every year? Uh, turns out the best you can do is an estimate, which itself is very dark and scary because legally they're supposed to report this stuff. Um, but instead you have compiled news reports that say reliably, we can say a uh, thousand people plus get killed by police officers every year. Uh, that's, that's a baseline. Like, is it possibly more than that? Yes. Okay, so that sounds pretty bad. Like three Americans a day are just getting shot by a police officer somewhere. Um, you know, uh, so the second thing is like, can you measure police brutality? Uh, and it turns out that we're paying out over a billion dollars a year in successful civil judgments against police departments around the country. Uh, and they have a very high legal standard to clear even in civil suits. Can you imagine trying to sue a cop for some fucked up shit they did and then winning? <laughs> like a lot of things have to go pretty well for you in the sense like you, you must have some real damage, witnesses, video, like something, because you know that police department's very well lawyered uh, and you're gonna have a very high legal standard to, to get through. So in New York alone, NYPD pays out hundreds of millions in civil suits for yeah, police. You. On your website, you mentioned about over 700 million, which surprised me. Yeah, in, in one year, it was like, it was in that ballpark and you're just like, what the heck is going on? So you're looking at over a billion dollars in civil suits, successful per year. So what is the actual scope of the harm? Some multiple of that. You're looking at billions of dollars in police misconduct a year. And then you look and say, okay, how is this being addressed or enforced? Uh, and the truth is that if you're a local district attorney, the last thing you want to do is mess with your like local police department. You're working with them every single day to make cases. Like you're not going to turn around and like try and stick it to them. So, which is one reason why someone like Kamala Harris, who was a district attorney, was like, "Hey, you need someone else because <laughs> like the district attorney cannot turn." So you, you so you ha you also have these union rules that are very very powerful. So you can see the scope of the damage is significant, and it makes sense that we would not be addressing it locally. Like uh, it's it, like that it's structural. Hmm. So to address it, you would have to take a shot at it with like a whole series of measures. Now, a couple of them are technological that your fans would probably like. Um, like, uh, should you have body cams on everyone that are just paid for like uh, um, nationally? So it's not on like, you know, it's not a cost burden for communities. Yes. Should you invest in non-lethal weaponry? And I'm a geek, so this was exciting, but like the, there, it's, it's actually the case that um, you should have. So right now you have a taser, uh, has limitations. Um, and, and, and taser, I'll say allegedly, I mean, I've seen, we've all seen videos. It's not non-lethal. Yeah, like a taser can be very dangerous in, in some circumstances. Um, uh, but there are a lot of situations where like the taser is not the right use case. Like for example, um, uh, when someone's like running away from you um, and they're beyond a certain range, uh, then the taser is not gonna reach them. Um, so then the next thing you have is a firearm. Um, and so we saw the, this case in Atlanta where the man was running away and then the cops shot him in the back. Uh, and so, like, could you use some new non-lethal weapon, like, a, and this is going to sound very, like, running man-ish, but, like, there, there is, like, a company that makes, like, these bolas that you could, like, shoot at someone running away from you, and it, like, wraps them up and, like, you know, like, like screws them up enough so that they, they're 
going to trip and fall and then you can like catch up to them. Yeah, that's the bowler wrap by Wrap Technologies. Yeah, so, so stuff like that, it's like, is that worth at least investing in um, and trying to figure out whether there's some intermediate level of force that a police officer could use that's not a lethal weapon? Yes. Should you be investing in crisis workers and mental health workers who can respond to calls that maybe don't warrant like uh, like someone carrying a gun because a, a one scourge in many of these communities is drug addiction. So you have these drug addicts who are who are struggling, like families call, and then a lot of the times the cop that shows up, you know, uh, or or the, there are circumstances where I think the number is like a third of people who are killed by police have a severe mental illness, and you can imagine a police officer showing up to someone who's uh, mentally ill and is not listening to commands, and so the police officer is like, stop, stop, or I'll shoot, and then eventually they shoot them. Um, and so you can send someone who's like a, a trained mental health worker or crisis counselor um, instead of like a, an armed police officer, or maybe they both go or some combination, but you need to invest in resources to that effect. Uh, in my mind, there should be some Department of Justice dedicated task force around uh, police misconduct. So then you can take the pressure off of local DAs to confront police officers. Because then if you have like a, an independent entity that's actually investigating, and it's been proven to work when you have consent decrees out of the Department of Justice when they investigate police departments, that it does reduce police violence. The problem is that those DOJ actions are very, very rare and, and far between. And they require not just like one cop screws up, but they need evidence of essentially a system-wide practice that raises the uh, misconduct to a point where it's unconstitutional like in the community. So it's not just like, hey, a cop did something reprehensible. It's like department-wide, there's a problem. And then and these consent decrees and the DOJ actions take years um, to execute. Uh, so there should be, in my mind, like a more immediate uh, remedy um, that gets used more often because the problem of police brutality is very real by the numbers. Uh, there are other practices like banning chokeholds, I think would be a good idea. Like there are other things you can do that, that are, there's like a laundry list. Um, demilitarizing, like we're sending billions of dollars to police departments. Uh, there's even an incentive, James, it's interesting, is that if you don't use the hardware within a year, then you're theoretically supposed to give it back. So let's say I give you like a tank. <laughs> like, like literally, you're like, well, I got to use this tank now. My neighbors um, would be unhappy, but, but go ahead. <laughs> No, no, literally, you have tanks and police departments, 100%. Like, the, the numbers there are staggering, too. We're, we're transferring tens of billions of dollars of hardware directly to police departments, and it's, uh, it's arming them um, in a way that makes it much more likely that they're going to use those armaments. But it also changes your orientation to that of sort of like a military outfit rather than, uh, like, uh, people who are talking directly to members of the community and uh, serving and protecting. So, you know, and all of this is kind of connected to the education, law enforcement, um, getting people jobs. One issue seems to be like in a lot of states and state by state, there's all these blue collar uh, licensing requirements. So, you know, each state has different requirements. If you want to be a manicurist, if you want to be whatever, all these blue collar jobs. Is there an issue of just kind of like maybe we should just get rid of those licensing requirements so people could get to work? Or at a minimum, we should make them portable. Like if you're a licensed hairdresser in Connecticut, does hair really change when you like cross the state line and get to Massachusetts? <laughs> you know? Well, it's a lot more humid in Florida, so I don't know. But uh... yeah, the, the licensing requirements have become onerous. And the most egregious example is doctors, where 
you know, you can be licensed to practice medicine someplace, and then I can't actually even use telemedicine to talk to you if you're across state lines, which on the face of it, you're like, does the human anatomy change <laughs> between, you know, Connecticut and Massachusetts? Like, does that make any sense? Um, uh, and so right now we, we, and this is actually like something that is a big theme of my campaign. And it's something that is a real struggle uh, and it, because it's complicated. Um, so in theory, licensing rules make sense. You're like, hey, I should make sure you know what you're doing before we like put you out there. Um, but then you end up with this bureaucratic tangle in some cases that does not make any sense. It's like, hey, I just moved like uh, 50 miles into a new state and like now I can't apply my trade unless I go through your weird set of hoops and like pay a fee and do all the stuff. It's like, is that positive? Uh, and so right now in America, like we, we, we have like uh, this uh, tangled up bureaucracy that unfortunately um, is in some cases insufficient. Like we should have rules for some things we do not have rules for. Like what? Um, you know, like, uh, like social media excesses and the fact that it has a negative effect on the mental health of our kids, particularly teenage girls. Should there be some kind of rules around that? Like, yeah, there probably should be. It's like, but you know, our government doesn't understand any technology issues. So it's like, yeah, <laughs> like, like, like it'll be okay. Um, so that's something we should have rules for. And then there are other things that we have these rules that have become these overgrown uh, brambles that no one really knows what the purpose is anymore. And then you just have bureaucrats being like, well, you know, you broke a rule. Um, uh, and, and so you have both of those situations simultaneously. So, so, but how would you, how would you make a change? Like if you were the president of the United States tomorrow and you could make a bunch of decisions, it still has to go, things have to go through Congress, things get bureaucratic, there's partisan issues, people fold stuff into bills, like it's just, there's lobbying, it just is a horrible system. That is the greatest challenge. And uh, I'll confide in you, James. It was one of my greatest concerns while I was running for president. Because there was a period when I, it dawned on me, I was like, holy cow, I could win this thing. Um, and, and then my greatest fear became like, how am I going to somehow drain the swamp, conquer the bureaucracy, do all this stuff? Because like, I'm not an idiot, like, like some other folks where you can't just go and like will things to happen. Um, the, the presidency has like very massive limitations. Like you can't just, you know, like wave your hand and, and try and override um, the rules and the lobbyists. Because in, in DC, if you have a rule set up, in many cases, that rule ends up giving rise to like an entire industry or like, you know, like set up people and the rest of it. And if you show up and you're like, hey, I'm going to make a change, it's like, well, you just like um, uh, pull the rug out from under like these X thousand people and they're really upset. And they have this lobbyist who's like, like they're waiting for you to try and knife you if you make any kind of change. And you you take that situation and multiply it times a thousand or 10,000. <laughs> you know, like, like if you go to DC, it like blows your mind how, um, uh, how, much like the influence peddling industry has overrun that that place. Um, you know, I went to a senator, I went to a breakfast with a senator and there were like eight lobbyists there just like who all paid like thousands of dollars for the privilege of like, and the, the senator was just there like eating his breakfast and then just went around and lobbyist one was like, so what about that orange growing rule? <laughs> you know, like it's like a whole town, like not just a town, it's the richest city in our country. Um, you know, uh, objectively now, Washington, D.C. And so one of the jokes I told on the trail, James, was like, what do they produce? And then everyone like laughed or was like, what do they produce? And it's like, well, whatever they're producing, business is awfully good. Um, so you're right that trying to somehow pull the roots out of that bureaucracy 
is a massive challenge. And when you ask what Andrew Yang will do about it in real life, there's the president seat, um, which I'd have certain things I would try and get done. Um, but, but the goal is, it's just like any entrepreneur where you show up someplace and you say, okay, what are like the highest impact uh, changes I can make that are actually doable and achievable that there's not some like massive set of obstacles in my way? You know, like a, a lot of it's like prioritization where you say, look, what is one rule I can undo that's going to really like uh, help free up a lot of energy uh, possibly? Um, or what's something I can fight for that like the other side has been weakening over time? This to me is one of the great challenges of our time that we have this overgrown like giant monstrosity of a, a bureaucracy that has lost the thread, you know, like uh, where, and, and the, the, most, the, the most heartbreaking uh, example in my mind is the CDC. You know, you look up and like Trump certainly has uh, a lot of responsibility, but you have to look at it and say like, you know, we had multiple failures at like different levels of the CDC um, that were driven by the fact that it's become this like kind of uh, slow-footed bureaucracy that was not ready for a pandemic, even though that's why it theoretically even exists. Yeah, I mean, uh, there's the whole issue of the the pandemic and the response to it, which I can't even get into. That's like a billion a billion man hours a day are wasted on Twitter with that. But um, but what would you do in a situation like like Seattle or Portland where? interactions between local government protesters, which may or may not be violent or increasing in violence, like in the so-called jazz, you know, kids died and just nobody was somehow paying attention or getting involved. Like, does the presidency have a role in that? Like, what would, what would, how would you look at something like that? Well, if I were president, I would, I think that that's very important. Uh, and I think the goal should be to try and de-escalate uh, tensions, not escalate them. Uh, you know, unless like there, there's, imminent loss of life or like massive uh, harm being done. Like you want to try and de-escalate tensions um, and figure out what people's uh, actual requests and demands are and then see what, uh, what could help move things in a better direction. Um, I, what happened in Portland seems just reprehensible and awful where you had uh, folks just getting thrown into unmarked vans, like stuff out of like a really bad conspiracy theory or dystopian movie um, that you hope wouldn't happen here in the United States. But I, I keep saying that all through these months and it just gets worse. <laughs> but I guess that's another another issue. Well, no, and, and this is one reason why my campaign did well, I think, James, is that like I think most people recognize uh, that like the, the, the bullshit is not working, you know? And like a, a lot of folks, like I realize that politicians come in and they like argue in symbols. Um, and that even my, what I thought was just like me delivering uh, information in a way that um, like just came naturally for me, it was like it, its own set of symbols. Uh, and then I'd look around being like, wow, like, uh, and, and then and this is what I was talking about before with the artifice is that if you're an experienced politician, you become really like conversant in like symbols that like work to activate a certain group of people. Uh, and and like the, like, meanwhile, the reality is degrading before our eyes. You know what I mean? It's like, like we're, we're we're just like, my brand of bullshit is better than your brand of bullshit. It's like, okay. Uh, meanwhile, like nothing's getting done. Like, you know, like, like, the, the, like our society's crumbling under, underneath our feet. And people are just getting increasingly fed up with it. Like people can, can see. I mean, and, and I, I, feel, I feel like, look, it's on, on both sides. I mean, we do need stimulus now. We do need direct relief to citizens. 
I, I don't know if it's the president or Congress or whoever, it seems disconnected from the reality that people are going hungry. There are food lines miles long now. It makes me angry. It breaks my heart. I'm doing everything I can to fight for stimulus money in our hands. I've been supporting local candidates with the hope that we can activate more members of Congress to get on board with it. But it is members of Congress that are just disconnected uh, because they, the need should be clear. It's crystal clear to you and me what's going on in, in communities around the country. The, the problem is that members of Congress are not really tied to their communities anymore in terms of keeping their job. Here's an idea, and this solves a bunch of problems, but it's crazy. I think congressmen and congresswomen should be forced to stay in their district and never come to D.C. and only vote while sitting in their district. This way, they can't be lobbied. You know, it's too much traveling for the lobbyists to do. And there's a little less backroom dealing. Just every congressman just has to vote from their district. And they should beam in like, like Jedi Council, like holodeck ah, style. That's great. Just like beam into it. You know, you know one of the, the most ridiculous things right now, James, is that uh, Congress can't even vote remotely. Um, like yeah. they, they have that as like a rule. And you have to look up at it and say, like, how does that make any sense? There are members of Congress who think it's imperative that you physically congregate, even in a pandemic, in like a large open room. And so your suggestion is genius. I love it. Like if you could make it so that people were actually in their communities, they'd have a better grasp on what's happening. And they, so, so the, and this is one related point to this is that um, a lot of folks, their fondest dream is just to be in DC all the time. Like, you know, like D DC is where it's at. And like, you, you know, you feel all um, uh, special and powerful and like everyone's sucking up to you all the time. Um, and, and so people develop careers in DC and it shouldn't be a career town that way for our elected representatives. Uh, we should have term limits. You know, it's like you should go to D.C., get try and get something done in, you know, let's call it 10 or 12 years and then freaking peace out. And then you come home again. Like that way you're more of a product of your community than you are of D.C. But right now we know that more of our legislators are more products of D.C. than the other way around. So uh, final thing I have to ask is, are we going to hear your voice in 2024? Are you, are you, I mean, why don't you run in 2024? I'm just going to say it. <laughs> uh, I, I'm still as passionate as ever about the fact that we have these massive problems and we need to speed up and try and address them. And if anything, another campaign would be uh, easier, more fun and better than the last one, because we'd be starting uh, much further down the line. So as long as, uh, the problems are there, which unfortunately I think they will be, and that I think I can do something to solve them, uh, then I'm going to keep fighting for it. And that could very well include another campaign. So people were psyched about this campaign. Uh, please do follow uh, me and my organization, uh, my podcast, Yang Speaks, and uh, let's keep on making the case, activate more people, solve these problems, and then bring back the Yang Gang bigger, better than ever. Yeah, and the organization is Humanity Forward, uh, and a lot of your your policies, candidates you support, other things you're working on are, are there. I also highly recommend your, your book, The War on Normal People, is a great treatise on your political philosophy, and, and you explain things in such a succinct way. It's a, it's a great, it was a pleasure to read a, a, such a well-written political book. I, I loved it. And... Um, Thanks for coming on the podcast, Andrew. I really appreciate it. This is uh, this is this has been a great podcast for me, and I, I I hope you come on again at some point. Well, it's been a long time coming. I appreciate the heck out of you, your team, your support, James. I know you were one of the early adopters 
um, the Yang Gang. So in my mind, my being on your podcast was always going to happen. It was a little bit overdue. Took a little longer than I'd hoped, but uh, yeah. You were busy. You were busy running for president. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, enjoyed the heck out of this conversation. And, and uh, yeah, keep up the awesome work. Thank you very much, Andrew. You too. Start clean with Clorox because Clorox delivers a powerful clean every time. Because messes happen. Because <laughs> the charcoal mess. Great, because why would I put that on my face when I could drop it in my sink? This is what I get for multitasking. Ugh, why is charcoal so sticky? <clears throat> Hello? Hey, Janice. I am so sorry. I thought I was on mute. <laughs> no, we don't need to reschedule. I'll just stay off camera. Ooh, yeah, that happens. So start clean with Clorox. Use Clorox products as directed.